We find ourselves this morning in Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians 6, please. Where we close the, the, the book on the household code. We closed the household code down last Sunday. Do you remember? Household code is a, a phrase that we have applied to Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 through 6, verse 9, as well as Colossians chapter 3, um, let's see, verses 18 through... Um, what verse four uh, chapter four okay three eighteen through four um, one let, let me show you what I mean in ephesians five twenty two husbands love your wives as Christ loved the or wives submit to your husbands as to the lord verse twenty five husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church uh, six one children obey your parents in the Lord for this is right verse four fathers Ephesians 6, 4, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Verse 5, slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh. And masters, verse 9, do the same things to them and give up threatening, knowing that both your, your master, that, that both their master and yours is in heaven and there's no partiality. So I'm going to turn the page about six or seven pages to Colossians 3. And here, here in verse 18, wives, be subject to your husbands. Colossians 3.18, it's the same, almost the same sentence. As is fitting in the Lord, husbands love your wives and do not be embittered against them. He does the same thing. It's, it's the lower authority than the higher authority in each household relationship. Children, be obedient to your parents for, in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Fathers, do not exasperate your children so that they will not lose heart. So the children and fathers and then slaves in all things obey those who are your masters in the earth, not with external service as those who merely please men, but with a sincerity of heart fearing the Lord. And it's all the same sequence of relationships because these are the household relationships. Now, big picture, zoom out a little bit to what's going on. We're talking about the privileges and practices of the church. It's the book of Ephesians, chapters one through three, the privileges of the church, chapters four through six, the practices of the church. And we're talking about in, in the beginning of chapter four, what, what practice to walk worthy of our calling. And in chapter five, to be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as we have an example from the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, now we're talking about being filled by the spirit, the, the dynamic power, the ability to walk worthy of our calling, to imitate God as God works in you. And you get these relationships. And here is the most interesting thing. The toughest stuff in life is a consequence of intimacy. The, clo the closer you are to someone, the greater the ability they have to hurt you. Some of you have developed defensive, a defensive posture, uh, a sort of an, a shield of separation between you and other humans. And you find yourself able to manage life by avoiding intimacy because you know 
the closer somebody gets, the more they can hurt you. You learn this from your siblings. At the earliest ages, you learn this from parents. If parents are abusive, the closer we are to someone, the greater their power to hurt us, and therefore the greater the hardship and conflict in the relationship. And this is moms and dads, future moms and dads. This is one reason we really have to be a steward of these relationships with those under us because we have no idea the way we're impacting them, developing them that God has entrusted to us. So here Paul is talking about how if you are walking worthy and imitating God as a beloved child and walking by the Spirit, this is what your household should look like. It should be ordered according to God's design. And you have a beautiful blueprint in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18 through 6, verse 9, of a Spirit-filled home. A Spirit-filled filled home. To get it, you have to think, and you have to think first and feel second. And this passage is not about the feeling of the Spirit. This passage is about the Word of Christ richly dwelling within you so that you can think God's thoughts and have the consequent affections that go with those convictions. We think a certain way, we believe a certain way, we love what God loves, and then we start to have a different set of convictions, of, of emotions, if you will, of affections. Don't be afraid of that. This is not emotionalism. It's the opposite of emotionalism. We all have emotions. The question is, what are they for and how to use them? And for most of us, when we're not careful and thinking, our emotions are the standard. They're the criterion upon, by which I, I judge things and live my life. And that's not God's design. Put your emotions on the table. They are what they are, but they aren't God's word and you're not God. This is me counseling myself, right? This is, you need to say this to yourself. We need to work through this every day when we, when we become aware that there is a, dif- a differential in how I feel and what God has said. Fine, I feel different, but God has said, and I want God to have his way because I've thought it through. I've counted the cost, as Jesus said. I know what the outcome is if God gets his way, and I know what the outcome is if I get my way contrary to God. Have you thought about that? If you get your way the way, the way you want it and ignore God's way, I promise you will be opposed to him. It'll be it, because we're sinners. But it'll be exactly how you feel in the moment, and your life will be a total disaster. But if you say, my feelings are what they are, I'm a sophisticated creation. God made me able to think and distinguish feelings from thinking. Put it on the table. It is what it is. Sometimes it's a mess. Okay. You're supposed to have this capacity of the way you, pardon the expression, the way you feel about things. It's not sin. It's often connected to sin. And some of the sins are emotional sins but it's part of who you are. And, and don't try to become mechanical uh, unless it is a uh, drill for you to think in the moment because if you give way to emotions in that moment of hardship and crisis, you will, um, you will fail. My point is that we're not emotionalistic, but we do heed the warning of C.S. Lewis and the abolition of man about men without chests. 
This was a very helpful thing for me to read. If you read the introduction to the abolition of man, it's a great little read. And C.S. Lewis talks about literary instruction of children and how in his day, there was this deconstruction of all the art, of all the beauty. And the, the specific thing was um, the, the teachers in, the, in the, the grammar that he was describing were saying, you should not say that the waterfall is sublime. You should say the waterfall is so many feet high and there's so much water going over it. And uh, in, in other words, not make these uh, emotive judgments that amount to an artistic um, emotive state that you, if you say sublime, you're saying um, how you feel about it. See what I mean? And, and what, what Lewis, C.S. Lewis was saying in the 40s and 50s, as he's watching postmodernism take root and take shape, and basically we destroy what human beings are by taking away beauty from our whole conception. Uh, as he's looking at this, C.S. Lewis is saying, we need, we need men with chests. He meant heart. And by the heart, he meant some fire, the art, the emotive side of things. That's what he's saying, men with chests. It's good advice. And you can't read the Psalms and conclude otherwise. You can't read Proverbs and conclude otherwise. The Bible's full of artistic in, in, injunction to engage not just content, but the way it's packaged. And so we're, we're called to, pardon the expression, have affections, obviously. But they're not the criterion. It's like the, uh, the body work. Body work's important. It has its place. Believe me, all of you think so. I've seen your cars. But it's not the engine. It's not the drivetrain. It's not the frame. But it has its place and it has a purpose. And a really great body with a rotten frame, well, that's what we call a New England 10-year-old truck. <laughs> so we're talking about the filling, not the feeling of the Spirit in Ephesians 5.18 through 6.9, the household code. And if you are uh, immersed in the emotional sense of the culture, if you have the, the world around you, if, if we think like the world around us about what morality is, what's right and wrong, in other words, about how women and men are supposed to interact, about how fathers and children are supposed to interact, about uh, slaves and masters, or in our day, because we don't have slavery in terms of, um, of management and labor. If you, if, you, if you read these things and see authority structures being absolutely asserted, if you're an anti-authoritarian because you are uh, deceived by your enemy, the one that hates your soul and wants to destroy you. If you're anti-authority and so anti-God, then um, there'll be emotive responses to the household code. But if you, instead of letting your feelings govern you, will put them to the side for a minute and think through the words and phrases Paul uses and trust God and say, I don't like this, but I need help with this. I don't know how to square what Paul is saying with what I've been uh, just saturated with in terms of um, the insanity, I call it insanity, of our moral state in our society. If you let God's word have its way, you will find joy in the commands of scripture. You will find peace and relief and the light burden and the easy yoke that Jesus promises. And uh, that's the best I can say in terms of a summary of the household code. It is 
for every one of our households, it is life. It is joy. It is victory. It is the, it is the gardener setting up a household that can raise the fruit of the spirit, that can grow uh, uh, godly seed and, um, and multiply God's work. And uh, without this household code, I believe it really, you really can't in terms of, of uh, cultural formation. I'm told we have to join the culture to, get, to reach it. You have to join the culture to reach it. And I think if I came as an outsider into a foreign culture, there would be a lot more credence to that idea. If I go to an African church to visit, teach pastors or whatever, if I go to a uh, to, um, Ukrainian church or go to foreign culture, I'm going to learn to do what the Romans do pretty quick. Start dressing like them. Uh, in as much as I think that would be received well, that they, that they get that I'm, you know, honoring them. But being from this culture and watching it decline, I think I have to stand and say no to the decline. So I don't, I don't untuck my shirt and run around, you know, in skinny jeans or whatever up here, even though that's where the culture is. That's what a pastor is in our culture, because this is what it used to be. And it's what it, in my opinion, should be. And there's something to be said for holding the line. I think there's a lot to be said for it. And I think you think that too. Now, moving on from culture and its opposition to the household code, let's talk about the real war that we're in in Ephesians chapter 6, beginning in verse 10. We're in Ephesians in a few Sundays. The last of a few, I suspect. We're going to travel on ground that is the fodder of the greatest of all VBS uh, material. The Apostle Paul, when he wrote this, never thought... Uh, for a second about VBS. That's for, for those of you that are not aware, that's vacation Bible school. Get the little kids wearing the, the Roman helmet and the shield and get this little little sword and, and a cardboard and, uh, and there's crafts. And each day you could do a different uh, item in the full armor of God, the panoply of God. And uh, that is a great thing to do. I did that as a little kid and our the one VBS I remember, they, they, I, the one thing I remember about Vacation Bible School as a kid was we made a sword one day, and um, that was cool. And I still kind of have a feeling of like loss when I, I lost the sword. I don't remember what happened to it. I still remember regretting that. Um, but that's all I remembered from it because it's very visual and very appealing. Now, but what we're talking about here is the most uh, horrific reality that you have to look at every single day. First Peter five calls Satan a roaring lion, a roaring lion prowling about looking for someone to devour. And we could go all kinds of places with that. The, the lion looks for the weak in the herd, the slow runner, you know, the <laughs> he's prowling about looking for someone to devour, meaning as you read in 1 Corinthians 7, if you aren't doing your job, you may be giving the devil an opportunity. If you lay hands on an elder too soon, newly planted before he's sufficiently mature and truly elder, then he falls into the snare of the devil, meaning he becomes proud and 
therefore arrogant and blinded to his pride and his arrogance. And you, and there's, and you, you don't have mature humility, so you end up with the snare of the devil. The Bible throughout the New Testament hints at this war, but the, but the idea I want you to get to is you're in a hostile environment that is caustic to you, and it's seeking a way in in any possible little, little weak spot, any chink in the armor. And you're and you have a great need to think about the war. We end the household code and how to live in your relationships with family and in the household and the power of God, the Holy Spirit. And now we talk about the war that we're fighting. There is perhaps no more um, instructive passage in the Bible on the invisible war, the angelic conflict. The, we call it angelic because Satan is an angel and he's fighting God. There is no more explicit passage about what you and I are supposed to do about it. If I ask you that question to set up the topic, what does the Bible say we do about the war that we are fighting against Satan? Or the Satan's fighting against us. Whether you know it or not, you're in a war. What are you supposed to do? Well, we're supposed to get together and pray and to get a little teams. And uh, we will walk into a section of town and, and every street will walk down it and pray over that street to, to drive out the demons. Claim it back for Jesus. Obviously, I don't think that's biblically stated anywhere. But I love the idea of prayer and recognizing we're in a war. So, I mean, these principles are true. We should be in prayer. Paul teaches that at the end of Ephesians 6. He, we, we know that we're in a war against Satan and we know that he has deceived the nations and he's the spirit, uh, the, 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 he's the prince of the spirit now working in the sons of disobedience in Ephesians 2, 2. We know that there is this invisible war. So what do we do? Well, it's interesting. If you take a general principle that we're supposed to be in prayer and that we're at war and then you just go, okay, go, you get a million different ideas. But what's interesting is Paul gives you more specific guidance where you aren't just left to brainstorm it. We're, we're given some specifics about the nature of our warfare in Ephesians chapter six. And I think that makes a huge difference in how you live. And it, it really matters if, if I tell you, all right, so in your bedroom, in your bedroom, there is a small Australian brown snake. It's the kind that if it bites you, you will meet the Lord sooner than you think. It's eight o'clock or not nine o'clock at night. There's a brown snake in your room somewhere. Um, and the power's out. So no lights. Good night. That would be um, like sentencing you to death. Take your chances, good luck. Hopefully it's not in your bed. How many steps does it take you to get from the door to the bed? I could do it in two or three. Hopefully when I land, it doesn't break the frame. At this point in my life, I have to think about these kinds of things. Why you don't jump on the bed. But, uh, but you know, and then assuming the brown snake is not in the bed, we'll just, you know, you have to initially say this, the bed is the safe space. And as long as you can get under the covers, I mean, that protects you from anything, right? And, and so, so just take your chances, just good luck. Like, or 
The person says, oh, well, thank you. Would anyone like another cup of coffee? There's a brown snake in my bed. And there's no power. Would, 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 would you like to continue the conversation or is it time to, to end the evening and we'll, we'll go off to our chambers? And just pretend like it's not there. Oh, I, I know you think that there's a brown snake in my bedroom, but okay. Well, it'd be really ridiculous to be told you have a deadly threat that can get you at any moment. And if it bites you once, you're dead. And you not take some serious precautions. You say, okay, well, first thing is let's burn the house down. <laughs> or no, let's don't, be over, let's don't go over the top here and, and, and that. Let's, um, let's get some light. Let's shine some light in the room and um, put on some protective clothing or something or get somebody, let's call somebody that has protective clothing and light and some sort of um, snake killing method so that I don't die. Th this is what you would do. You would take precautions. You would be alert. You would certainly not just go about things like, like normal. And that's what's happened here. The apostle Paul calls to our attention that we're in a war and Satan is the problem. So let's talk about it. What remains, my brethren, is literally what your Bible might translate as finally, it's the, fine, the, the remnant. The, the last thing I want to talk about, this is the last piece, is I'm changing subjects. And so this is a hinge verse. What remains, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. You have three different words for power or strength or might. Strong, strength, might. Now, why have I put the apostle of the Lord Jesus, his words in red in Ephesians in our study? Y'all have been doing this with me. This is the 10th get together, 10th Sunday on Ephesians. And it's the first one on chapter six, verse 10. But why in red? Do you know? You don't know why it's in red? Number one, do you know why? Samuel, do you know why it's in red? Anybody under the age of 30 know why it's in red? Would you like to know why? Well, look at it. It says, be strong in the Lord. What kind of a statement is that? Thank you. It's a command. And what I've done in these um, chapters four through six is really highlighted the commands because they clarify so much. When I tell you, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might, I'm instructing you in something, and this is great. This isn't just an boy. you go get them. This is a command from the Apostle Paul with the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ that you are not allowed to be a victim. You're not allowed to lose the war. You're not allowed to be weak. You're commanded to be strong. He just told you to be filled by the Spirit with the result of all these factors and how you interact with one another and with God. Ephesians 5, 18 through 21. He told you about the household code, how the, the filling of the spirit will work through your household as the fruit of the spirit is brought to express as you love and all that love is. And then he says, you have to be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Now pull that apart just a little bit. He didn't say, hitch up your, your dungarees and, uh, and, and roll up your sleeves and, and, uh, and be strong in yourself. This is the Apostle Paul of 2 Corinthians 12. When I'm weak, then God is strong. When Jesus said, my power is brought to full expression, telios, it's brought to its completeness through your weakness. 
I think the most important phrase in this one is in the Lord. Be strong in the Lord with his power. I told you to watch the, the concept of God's power in Ephesians. It's, it's this, one of these threads that runs through the whole book. That God would open your eyes to see the power of his salvation. What, what's the big theological term for the power of God? Do you know the O word for the power of God? That would be omnipotence. And we're talking about, that means all powerfully. God can do all that he wants that fits within his desires and according with his character. Can God lift an infinitely power, or like, a, like an unliftable stone? Well, that would be a lie and God can't lie. If it's unliftable, then God's character works altogether. And so, but God is all powerful. And when you talk about be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might, this is saying, recognize where your power comes from and engage. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the panoply of God. I translated the word panoplia, uh, actually transliterated it from the Greek word panoplia to the English word panoply because we actually have this word in English. But it means the whole kit. It means the whole kit. If you think about um, the way the, uh, the medieval Japanese uh, held their armor in, in certain cultural things, we've seen the, the way that there would be a stand and they would hold their breastplate and there would be a place to, to put the helmet and the, and the weapons associated with it. Um, if, you, if you go see a suit of armor from the, the European medieval knights, and how they would, you know, generally the armor's displayed, sometimes as like the person is in it, but he's not. But there's a way of displaying and setting up, and you don't think, think of just a suit of armor as a breastplate. It's got the greaves, it's got the, the, the on the, the leg parts, it's got the, the arm gauntlets, it's got the, you know, whatever the weapon would be. And so you think of the whole kit. That's what this panoplia means. It just means the whole kit. It means all that God wants to protect you with. Not just the helmet, so you're, you know, you're running around headbutting the enemy um, and hoping that nobody chops at your feet, right? Or that, and actually that you run over something um, with your feet that would cut you or hurt you. Um, this is the whole kit. God has a, a provision for you. And here's the thing about the panoply of God. It's spiritual. Every one of these things is spiritual. You can't touch it. And because you fight fire with fire, because the war we wage isn't physical, so you don't have a physical kit from God. God's kit for you, God's set of tools of defensive equipment is spiritual. The panoply of God. Now, why is it in red? <laughs> Thank you for noticing that he said, be strong in the Lord. And then he said, put on the panoply of God. He didn't say, it's a good idea for those that feel like engaging the battle today to put on the full armor. He says, do it. Well, I'm not sure I want to be at war. That decision's already been made for you. You don't have to worry about that one. You are at war. Well, I'm not sure I want to go out and you know, put on your armor. As the Spartan mothers or wives said to their husbands, come back with your shield or on it. Meaning, do not throw your shield down and beg for mercy. I'm unarmed, I'm unshielded, don't kill me. No, for you Spartan, I want you to fight 
until the battle's won or until you're no longer alive. That's the Spartan ethic. Never thought you'd hear Spartan dogma preached from Ephesians chapter 6. Well, you have to be selective with your Spartan ideas. Some of them are straight satanic, but this one is actually be courageous. Don't be, uh, don't be a coward. Put on this armor because you have a war and God loves you. Now, as we emphasize the commands of scripture, I want to show you that they are love. They are the love of God. Young people, when your parents give you instructions, if those instructions are obviously motivated to protect you from something they foresee as a danger, the reason they're telling you these instructions is not because they're trying to control your life, although they're supposed to if you're in their household. The reason they're telling you these commands is because they love you and they know about the environment better than you do. Oh, they don't know. They don't know the social media stuff. They don't know what's going on in school. They don't know the new culture. Your parents know people. They know hardship. They know bad decisions. And these things don't change. The ways we make bad decisions, the opportunities to make them change, the music changes, the dances are the same. So this is a command from God because he loves you. Watch the commands of scripture. The more you grow in the Lord, the more his instructions need to be just diamonds in your, in your purse. It, it, it needs to be a blessing to your soul. It needs to be more and more, as, as we read in Proverbs, uh, a, a, gar a garland that anoints your head and uh, a necklace about your neck. In other words, riches. God's commands are riches because your father is saying, I love you. But here is why you put on the panoply of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes, the plans, the devices of the devil. Diabolos, the personal angelic being who in rebellion against God is being permitted, God is allowing him to wage this rebellion that apparently has uh, gone throughout human history. I should say, not apparently, it dogmatically has. The first thing we know about Satan is he possesses an, an animal and then speaks through the animal in Genesis 3. And we know that, that this is the apostolic interpretation of Genesis 3 because the apostle John in Revelation tells us the serpent of old and Satan and the devil, who's the dragon I'm talking about now, Revelation 12. So we know that, that this is Satan's thing and he's been opposed to us and, and attacking us from our first parents. And in fact, his engagement with Eve in Genesis 3 is why the fall Adam fell because we're all in Adam, but Satan got to Adam through the woman. And so we're able in the panoply of God to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. They're naked. That's Southern. We'll go with it. They're naked in the garden and Satan attacks them, but they were actually given armor. They had God's word that said, do not eat from this tree. And the day you eat from the tree, you'll surely die. They had the armor that God provided for them. God didn't send them in there uh, into the war unarmed. But you have to believe. You have to lift the shield of faith and believe the word of God to be able to defeat the schemes of the devil. Now, in terms of prayer marches, let's go out and pray over the community. Well, I think personally, it doesn't matter where you pray. 
I don't think there's any talisman to geography. I really believe that, and I'll show you that over the year, the, the next uh, 12 months or so. It really doesn't matter where you do the thing that you do. Um, what matters is what you're doing. So I don't think there's a special geographical, that the idea of territorial spirits. We do have the Prince of Persia and, and stuff in Daniel. There is a sense where there are powers somehow associated with at least nations and governments. But the Bible doesn't tell us anything more than this exists. It doesn't tell us how it works. So I love to come up with all kinds of creative things and, and uh, fantasy ideas about how this all works, but it's just conjecture. So let's get back to the Bible. It doesn't matter where you pray. What matters is that you pray, but here you're not on the offense. Now I know most of you already know this, but I want you to be able to, to share with others. The purpose of putting on the armor is not so that you're now protected and shielded so that you can go on the offensive. You're not Iron Man. You're gonna go solve all the, all the world's uh, terrorist problem. I'm gonna go fight all the bad guys now because I've got my armor. You're to stand firm. It's a defensive engagement. God is permitting Satan to do what he's doing. And it is our mission to grab some, as many as we can out of the fire, but they have to believe. And you've got to engage with them. Have you considered? But the, notice that the purpose of the armor, according to the word of God, is to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Why? Because for us, this is my translation of a challenging little couple of phrases here. Because for us, the struggle is not against blood and flesh in the Greek order, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the world rulers, the cosmocrator, the world, literally world ruler, world prince of the darkness of this age, against the spirituals, I supply forces of evil in the heavenlies. And all of that in verse 12, that is your enemy, is saying Satan has a system. We started with the devil in verse 11, the schemes of the devil. And then the war we fight is against his system that is an organized, integrated, personally staffed opposition. And you get all these synonyms and Paul is throwing synonyms to paint a picture. And it is a dark picture. And it's one we look at because we need to know that there's a snake in the bedroom. But we don't want to fixate on that picture. You don't want that to be your focus. Your focus is on the Lord Jesus Christ. Keep seeking things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father in Colossians 3. But this is the nature of your enemy. You need to know this. It's something you can't see. It's spiritual forces of darkness. You can't really see it. I think you can hear it. Starts with there is no God. Starts with you don't really have to obey God. Starts with, well, what God's view isn't really how it really is. Right? That this is how these things start. I can tell you the, the you know, untie the shoelace by pulling one string. Well, we pulled the one thread that, un, that opened the entire dog food. <laughs> okay? The one thing in your civilization where God said, nope, don't do it this way. And we said, ah. The one thread has undone everything. Tore, tore down the household, tore down the marriage, tore down the family, tore down the, the children don't have parents at home. So the kids are in the cultural formation, the kids are not grown up obeying their parents and learning authority and being trained to restrain their lusts. How did we get to this? What was the one thread that, that I think it all hangs on? 
Does anybody know what I think is the one thread that your culture basically said no to God on? <laughs> we are uh, saying to now, to, it's moral in our culture to say that the act of marriage is not necessarily for marriage. The act of marriage, which gives you children, is not the act of marriage. And now I'm going to preach Southern Baptist style, or not Southern Baptist denomination, but just like a Southerner. From the Baptists, I'm going to preach about fornication because it is the thread that has undone the entire civilization. It really has. In my view, it has. It explains all the rot, all the inner city rot, all the trouble of all the breakdown of household. It explains the abortion thing. You know, you know what I think about that. Pastor Dave, why are you preaching about fornication if we're talking about the spiritual war that Satan is waging? Because in my view, this, and I have a good authority from 1 Corinthians 7, that this is one of the key areas Satan attacks us. He attacks us in this area a lot. But our struggle is not against blood and flesh, but against the rulers, the authorities, the world rulers of darkness of this age, against the spiritual forces of evil or wickedness in your Bible and the heavenlies. So you need armor that defends you against an enemy you cannot see, you cannot touch. Obviously, it is your thinking. It is the protection and the, the furniture of your understanding and your conscience and your response to God. It really is necessary for us to think. See how dangerous it is to say, oh, well, I'm at war and the armor is, is the concepts and the truths of God's word, but I just really feel such and such. You're, you're going to war without armor on. You are really naked on the battlefield. And that is, that is the worst, worst of all places to be naked on the battlefield. On account of this, take up the panoply of God. On account of this, the fact that you have this enemy, take up the panoply of God so that you'll be able to stand firm in the evil day and after having done everything to stand. I see Paul repeating himself in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 11 through 13. Do you see the repetition? The command is to be strong and put on the panoply and then, or the armor, and then he says, the purpose is so that you'll be able to stand firm. He does that in verse 11, verse 13, take up the panoply of God so that you'll be able to stand firm. When you read it, you noticed this. And if you're reading fast, you probably noticed, well, we, we just said that. He says it twice, almost in, in, in this exact same order, almost the same sentence. It's like, it's important. I learned this in my first semester at seminary, that when you see a repetition in scripture, Sometimes it's as though God is underlining this one. Hey, pay attention. This is on the test. The professor stomps his foot and says that might be a, a thing to keep hold of. There may be a question that says exactly what I just said. The pattern is be strong and take up God's armor so that you're able to stand firm. That's the pattern. And the reason he supplies is because we have an enemy. So the command put on the armor has a purpose, Isaiah. What's the purpose? So that you'll be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. And then he explains, he gives you the explanation of the war, the nature of the war that you fight. That's the structure of what he's saying. 
And then he does it again. He repeats the command and the purpose for the command. Now, in this is training of children, I believe. In this is a way, is, a, is an understanding of the training of children. Learning to think is different from fighting to get your way. And so usually when my children ask why, 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 what they really mean is change what you just said to what I want. And we have to recognize that. But notice the way God deals with us. He tells us what he wants us to do. He gives us the purpose why he wants us to do it. In this case, he doesn't always, but in this case he does. And then he gives you a thorough explanation of the nature of the problem. And that makes all the difference. Why should I be armed? I want, I, I want to make love, not war. Well, if you love God, then you're going to put on your armor because God loves you and told you to do it. Therefore, stand firm. Why is it in red? Because it's a command. And we put the commands in red. See the red letters? Commands are in red. If I'd have known you would be here, I would have done more pictures. You're doing good. You're doing real good. Got the preacher vest on and everything. Stand firm after having girded up your loins with the truth. The belt that girds. It doesn't say the belt, it says the truth. This is a reference to apparently Isaiah 11 verse 5. Paul is actually in Isaiah through all of these uh, armor things except for the shield. Isn't that interesting? It's all Isaiah. Isaiah 11, 5, the shield, gird up your loins with the truth, not the shield, the, the, the belt. And you could say, well, Paul had a Roman soldier and so he's looking at Roman soldier's equipment. Well, maybe, but he's definitely quoting Isaiah 11, 5 here. And so what's the thing that holds everything together? That's the point of the belt. What, what gets you in action as opposed to in pajamas? It's the, it's the belt, the way these people dressed. Holds everything together. Probably better uh, understood like a girdle, but we don't wear girdles, men. So we'll call it the belt. <laughs> but the point is, it's the central piece, the truth. And the truth does set you free. And the truth isn't about how we feel. The truth is what is. And we need to feel the right way about the truth, sure. But maybe you're not there yet. Put it aside. Think. The thing that holds you together is the truth, not your feelings. Some people have said facts don't care about your feelings. Those people are correct. But that's a little trite. Having girded up your loins with the truth and being clothed with the breath, sorry, being clothed with the breastplate of righteousness. That is a tough one. Clothed with the breastplate of righteousness. That is Isaiah 59, 17. Isaiah chapter 59, verse 17. Let me grab it real quick. Oh, we've got to get back into Isaiah, people. In verse 15, now the Lord saw and it was displeasing in his sight that there was no justice. And he saw that there was no man and was astonished. There was no one to intercede. Then 
his own arm brought salvation to him and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness like a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. And he put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself with zeal as a mantle. I have just cracked the code. I hope you heard it on what the full armor of God is. So the armor of God wears. He's going to war with this equipment. Wow. Maybe you should uh, be like your dad as beloved children, imitate your father. That's what is going on if you take Isaiah 5, 59, 17, which Paul is doing and bring it into this conversation of spiritual warfare. Being clothed with the breastplate of righteousness. How do you clothe yourself with righteousness? Well, the breastplate only, not only in the Roman situation would protect you, it would also identify you. Your unit insignia would, would be on the breastplate. And so it is, a, it's protecting all your vitals and is also identifying you. And we have in First uh, Thessalonians 5, a portrait of the, the breastplate of righteousness and love, I believe. But here, the, the point of the breastplate of righteousness is that you are, you are clothed and protected by this moral perfection of your creator. It's not your righteousness. It's not self-righteousness. It starts with imputed righteousness. And then in your experience, walking worthy of your calling, walking in the light as God himself is in the light. The righteous are as bold as a lion. It's when we're compromised, when we know we're wrong, when our conscience is broken, that we're weakened. So there's your protection. Righteousness. When you know you're right, don't get righteously indignant and then arrogantly sin in an illicit anger. There's a righteous anger, but in an illicit anger and bitterness. Don't go fall off the balance beam that way. Walk in righteousness. And that's your protection. Having shod, having shod the feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, uh, that is not 59, that's Isaiah 52, 7. The, the, how blessed are the feet that bring the good news. Having shod the feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. So we're, we've got truth, we've got righteousness, and we've got the gospel, which gives you wings, which gives you wheels, because you have a mission now. This is, the, this is God's armor for you. See, I believe when he says the preparation of the gospel of peace and he quotes Isaiah 52, he's saying, get to work. It's a go share the gospel. Not that I've believed in it, but that I'm here proclaiming it. It's, it's defensive. It's armor for you that you're on mission. How about that? You're called to be on mission. You feel like, well, if I venture out into Satan's world and, and, and start sharing Christ, then I'm going to start getting attacked. Well, if, if you aren't doing that, then you're already in the, the POW camp. You're already defeated. This is actually defensive. Upon all, literally, probably um, above all, epi, having taken up the shield of the faith, the faith, this is interesting, the shield of the faith, this is the body of truth that is believed. I've always read it in English, the shield of faith, but I think a lot of times Paul says the faith and he's talking about that which you believe, not the believing itself. Taking, having taken up the shield with which you'll be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Boy, do you need that piece of equipment? Now, I believe, now watch me, Genesis 3, Satan says you will not surely die. And so the woman eats the fruit and then gives it to her husband and he takes one look at her and then eats the fruit. All right. I believe that the shield is the truth or the word that has been given. We already have had the truth. 
We've had righteousness. We've got the gospel. All these things are reflective of God's word. And now the shield of the faith is that information, at least in Genesis 3, that would have stopped that attack. If she had said, wait a second, oh, no, no, no. God said, we, if we eat of it, we'll die. And you're saying we won't die. I'm going to believe the word that God has already said and therefore disbelieve your attack and say, I don't believe what you're saying. I believe what God is saying. But she didn't go there. She tried to enter into a neutral position, I think, and say, well, let me just look at this for myself, which meant that there's no neutral. She was disbelieving God. And so this shield, this the faith is the thing that can extinguish the flaming arrows of the evil one. This is the most powerful position that you have is when you trust in your creator. And if you stop trusting in your creator, like the apostle Peter, before he was the apostle Peter and just the fisherman Peter, you will sink. If you look away from Jesus, you sink. If you look at him, you, you, can, you can walk on water, as it were. You can, you can weather the storm and you're strong, but you're weak without trusting in him. So there is the body of truth and then what you do with it, trusting it. And the helmet of salvation in order to receive. And it, this is interesting because he throws an infinitive in the middle of this list of uh, participles. You know, you get your infinitives and your participles mixed up. I think it's an idiom and there's more going on than just verse 17 being a list. I think there's more to it. And he's saying that verse 14, stand firm in order to receive this helmet of salvation. I think that's probably the grammatical relationship between verse 14 and verse 17 in terms of the grammatical structure. But the helmet of salvation in order to receive or the, it, to receive it, and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. So if you stand firm, if you have a prior conviction that you stand firm and you gird up with God's equipment, then you will be able to weather the storm. And the helmet of salvation again is God's helmet in Isaiah 59, 17. The word for word here is rhema, the spoken word, the spoken word. And I think that you have an example of someone standing firm with the word of God, without any uh, armor physically, but against a satanic attack in Matthew chapter four and Luke chapter four, to which we'll turn second hour. And um, if you are wondering, oh, I wanna hear, hear the rest of this and get finished with Ephesians, then you who are here present right now, join us online for the rest of it in 30 minutes. And um, because we are trying to not have to go outside because outside I'm not nearly as effective uh, <laughs> as I am this way because of how we set it up. I know that from experience. So um, y'all come back uh, next time and um, please communicate with us. If you don't like first hour, if you wanna do something different, you need to talk to us because we're trying to make sure we get maximum um, uh, availability for everyone to join us. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Father, we praise you for this eternal life we've enjoyed in proclaiming your son's death until he comes in the Lord's table. Thank you for our so great salvation uh, that is always pointing out your grace. And thank you that we are protected by our armor and that we are um, able to lift this shield of faith that will always extinguish the flaming arrows of the evil one and uh, that that's the nature of our engagement. 
Father, I pray that um, as we take these things to heart, as we let these things sink in, that you would make us victorious. Give us uh, successful encounters with the gospel of peace with others. Father, help us to love as you've commanded and to know in our consciences before you that we're doing what you'd have us do since you have indeed commanded it. Father, help us to be strong in your strength and recognize that's infinite. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.